0: I uh, I listened carefully to the invocation. To me, one of the most significant things in the world is the realization that we can come together as a group of people like this and begin to mobilize our (coughs) energies. In helping solve probably one of the major problems confronting our nation today. Old Abraham Lincoln once said, and he studied about this problem because he had a law partner who was an alcoholic, and he said that this problem was a cancer that was eating at the very vitals of our society. And he said it a long time ago. And I was looking at this, these pictures here in this auditorium about the development of this beverage, Coca-Cola, and way back there in the 18th century, this man comes across a formula. But in 1780, Dr. Thomas Trotter of England said that there was a form of drinking that was a disease. Alcoholism was defined an illness back in 1780. And Benjamin Rush, our first surgeon general, confirmed it. And even 400 years before the birth of Christ, the Solons in Athens came to a meeting to discuss the seriousness of drunkenness in their city and the disturbing factors. So this age-old problem, who would have ever dreamed I couldn't have dreamed 14 years ago that you would have had a group of people like you coming to uh, an auditorium to discuss alcoholism. I, I just—it's it, still marvelous to me how much progress has been made in the last few years. When I drove into Abilene, I—I hadn't—I had been here once or twice when your streets were being torn up, with just just long enough to get out. <laughs> but I marveled today at, at how clean everything was and how wide these streets, and you've got in new sewage lines and you've got in new water lines and you've got overpass. You've got three great schools. You're an educational center. Some year or two ago, I spent a whole day in the Abilene High School, talking to the senior class. Nice conference the president and the student body. Nice interviews with the principal, and the dean of girls. And as a little kid, the first telephone I ever saw was in Abilene. The first time I ever rode on a Pullman car was from here to Fort Worth. And the first automobile ride was here in Abilene. And my father was a minister here a long time ago. So I I love Abilene, and I love your progressive spirit, and I love the fact that you saw fit to clean up your town and beautify it. And we in Austin, where I live, are a little bit jealous of you. I'm, I'm just glad that you did. It's going to have a very wholesome effect all over this state. And it brings you to this point. Some people say, well, I have no alcoholic in my Family, I, I don't, uh, I don't need to, to discuss this thing. It's, it's no problem with me; it never has been. And we kind of think about the repercussions of your cleanup here and your beautiful streets. How that's going to affect all of the state of Texas for something good and constructive? It's a symbol. It's contagious, and likewise, it'll be contagious if this council. If your council here will function and operate as it's capable of doing with the same spirit of cooperation that exists in your city and all other endeavors, then your council will become a symbol for so many cities that are struggling to find ways and means to to develop a program of education on this problem in their community. I hope that new officers directors will accept the challenge and do your best. I, I, I can't help but believe it would help so many others as well as yourself. A little subject I had was the uninformed, the misinformed, and the informed. And I suppose in talking about alcoholism that we sh- first should say what it's not before we say what it is because we have so much confusion about it anyway. And probably the most confusing thing about alcoholism today is the name itself. Alcoholism. I once sat in a meeting in New York with some uh, authorities with the Yale School and they were discussing this this problem. This this ability to get over to the people uh, the thought that that there's a certain type of person who uses alcohol who's a very sick person. And the difficulty was going to be, and this was 15 years ago, the difficulty it was going to be, would be that people would confuse drunkenness and alcoholism. They would uh, think that anybody that gets drunk was an alcohol. And they would write in their magazines and in their articles and everywhere else, that this person and this character in this novel or in this show had an alcoholic problem. In other words, they would begin to use the word in such a manner that it would lose its effectiveness. The misuse of a word. Now alcohol, the first symptom of alcoholism naturally is drinking alcohol of any kind. That would be a symptom of course. But as this drinking progresses, and there is an obsession sets in for it, then an obsession is what makes this thing such a serious problem. I I feel like that if we could get over just this simple thought, that the alcoholic's drinking is only a symptom of his problem. And when he gets sober, dry, physically, he is just in a position for treatment of his illness. If that simple thought could be gotten over, if it could be gotten over to families of AAs, if it could be gotten over to the AAs themselves, if it could be gotten over the general public. The alcoholics drinking is a fever, it's a symptom. Therefore, we must be concerned that the drunkenness factor on which he's judged, his behavior, his attitudes, he's judged on his symptoms Because when he's not drinking, people just simply can't visualize him being sick. He has nothing that shows up. The way TB was knocked from number one killer to 7th place, was a development slowly and surely over a period of 40 years of about 3,800 or 4,000 TB societies. These TB societies were composed not of recovered TBs. There might be one or two on, the, on their council, but they were largely people who'd never had the illness. Most of them had no one in their family with it. But they were concerned that here was a malady affecting mankind, that that you had to educate the people about the symptoms, you had to educate them about the treatment that was available, you had to show them the economic and social loss of this illness, and above all else, you had to take the stigma off of it, you had to take the consumptive off the back porch and talk and show him as a person ill rather than whispering about him. To this very day, every time I make a talk in some problem on alcoholism, as I did in Amarillo to a first Christian church there, had a big Wednesday night banquet meeting, we had a good time, because this problem should be talked before every ethical, organized group in a community. So after there was about three or four people, one of them called on the phone later. They didn't want to talk about it even there but they were aroused a little bit because one had a husband, one had a brother, another had a relative. And now they were getting concerned that maybe they should inform themselves on what part do I play in the recovery of my husband? Do I have a part in helping my brother? And you know, they were still hesitant. They were still wanting to talk quietly about now, I, I can understand that, and I, I have no, I'm not criticizing it. But someday we've got to talk about this thing right out like we would TB. And I know of no way in the world to bring this problem that's out of control in our country, to bring it in control or under control, is to do it with these councils. These people who are just want to inform themselves. Do you know we only have between only have between 10 and 15 percent maximum of the general public that understands the nature of alcoholism is treatment. They don't know what it is. 85 to 90 percent completely confused or don't know anything about it. The misinformed. Terrific. I don't believe there's any solution except to mobilize the community resources. I don't think any one segment of society can solve this problem. I think groups of people who may be in disagreement, they may be in disagreement on how the person becomes an alcoholic or whatnot but I think we can prayerfully all join hands in helping the sick alcoholic get well. I think it's a Christian attitude, I have never heard anyone that, that wouldn't subscribe to. It. That this person we may not agree on how he became an alcoholic, but we can all join hands in helping him and that one statement made by the President of a university in Dallas was the development of a great council on alcoholism because there were people there who had all kinds of opinions i i don't uh, I think there are moral issues involved in the process of alcoholism. But I think when the person has passed over into the area of the obsession for it and the chemistry of his body won't let him use it without getting drunk, when those two things have come together, coupled together, an obsession on one hand and the word allergy we use on the other, whether it's a psychological allergy or a physical allergy, a sensitivity or whatever you wish to call it, When those two things exist, we have a very sick person. A person might have taken poor care of himself, stayed up all night, caroused around, drank too much, and he might have developed TB. But I'll guarantee you, if you will move with me over to the City County Hospital in Los Angeles many years back, I was taken off the train in an ambulance and taken to a hospital. I was an alcoholic. I had left Washington, D.C. I'd traveled. I'd become one of these persons who'd lost everything and just running around all over the country. Now, they took me to this big city-county hospital because I was shaking completely all over. I hadn't had a drink in a day or two, but I was completely collapsed from the impact of it and the lack of care and the malnutrition that goes with it they would put me in this big ward next to a person who had been taken there because of tuberculosis an active case and the social worker came by to interview us and I remember listening to the questions she asked this man with TB she was concerned only with his present condition she did not say anything in the world about how he might develop it she wasn't concerned about anything, but how can I help you? We know you're sick because we can take a slide and put it under a microscope and we can find germs. And if I can find a germ, you're sick. She came to me. She looked at my little card deck. And she began to say, isn't that a shame? Isn't it a shame? Here your father was a minister. Here you used to be principal in high school. Here you had all of these fine things in life, and now look at you. And I can still hear her high heels and her tongue clicking as she walked away. What did that do to me? That made me feel like the very thing that was killing me. That I was a victim of self-inflicted, vicious habit. And all I had to do was to quit drinking and everything would be all right. And that would be true with a person who gets drunk because he wants to. But it's not true with an alcoholic. I was once talking to a group of ministers and a question arose in Fort Worth there. If this is a disease, where is the germ? Now, the way I was brought up... There was never any drinking or anything, and there was no stronger worker of the prohibition movement in the world than my father. I've seen him have knocked down, dragged out scraps. I've seen him go through the hell of, of all the embattled communities. And so when I came up in the world, I knew all of these things. I was also very, very conscious of being brought up in such a way where I loved my family and I loved God too and so when I became a victim of this illness and here I want to describe a misinformation too there's a certain percent of alcoholics there's a certain percent of people there's some here tonight who probably never drank who because of some reason no one knows it may be in the enzyme system of their liver it may be some other physical liability but there's a percent of people who if they used alcohol at all would get drunk immediately they never had any no one knows why the best scientists don't know why and I was one of those people There was never any element of control. The first time I used it, it was overboard. But I was also one of those individuals that alcohol did something for. Here I was, a lonely person. I can't remember up until the last few years when I wasn't lonely. Even with the presence of my loved ones, there was a feeling of loneliness. I think I was born lonely. I know I was born with, uh, uh, as I said, somebody tired. I think I've always been tired. Uh, I was uh, a person who sure did like to have things done just right. I wanted. I was a perfectionist. Many alcoholics are that way. I had an enlarged conscience. Most alcoholics I know do. They are so sensitive to what's right and wrong that when they do something wrong, their sense of guilt lasts with them longer than anybody I know. They have more difficulty to forgive themselves than anybody I know. And yet, they want it and need it so bad. Because unless the alcoholic can forgive himself, he doesn't get well. Many of our relapses in alcoholism is due to that insidious thing of lack of forgiveness. And I was going on down the hill because I really felt that my best friends who advised me and talked to me knew what they were speaking of when they said all I had to do to get along all right, get well, to get your family back and things was to quit drinking. And when I quit drinking, I was not well. So you don't have to have a germ or a virus to be sick. I was at a meeting in Dallas once where a child psychiatrist was present. It was a council on alcoholism. They had been in the community chest. See, in Orange, Texas, in Dallas, and Austin, and Houston... All the councils are a member of the community chest. And so this was a meeting of the section of the community chest with the, dealing with the alcoholism. And I remember this young psychiatrist doctor making this statement. He said if Jesus Christ was living today, and he ran across a person who thought he was sick, Christ would say he was, if he thought so. And I've always remembered that because the thought life of the alcoholic is really what's sick. His attitudes are sick. His thinking is sick. How many millions of alcoholics of the six million, how many tonight, every hour, I bet you'd take all the ambulance in the country if you could get them together in a city like New York, if they all decide to do something to get well. If they all decide at once. You couldn't handle a situation. It would be a national emergency. If all the six million alcoholics developed this illness all at once, as you would polio, and it'd strike them down, you'd have the president call a meeting of his cabinet. Six million people sick from a terrible malady, progressive in its nature, no known cure. No, it doesn't have the dramatics. Alcoholism doesn't have the virtue of a germ. It doesn't even have the advantage of an unknown virus that can't be seen under the powerful microscope. If the alcoholic's nose on one side would turn a purplish yellow, we could raise fifty million dollars for education on alcoholism. If just any little thing, I have often prayed, why couldn't we walk funny? Why couldn't we sneeze different? Why couldn't we not eat something? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Because people would say, "Yes, sir, he's he's sick, all right." What's? Listen to that sneeze. No. No, we we've got a problem. We've got a guy when he's sober, or a woman when she's sober, and don't forget we have around five to six hundred thousand women alcoholics. And it's rapidly increasing. If you'd shake down all these beauty parlors in some of these cities, and empty those bags out, you'd be surprised how much slow gin and fast gin and haddock alcohol and anything that ends in no OLNL L would be found there. I you know some of these big department stores, if they could keep those guys sober at Christmas time, they wouldn't have any sale. But to get some of the old racemen by half drunk and they go up there and buy all these fine clothes to the family and then the first of the month comes along and they're mad for a year. You know, it's a funny thing about this stuff. Funny thing. So I told these ministers in Fort Worth, I said, well, you've got to look at diabetes. Now, diabetes is uh, has no germ, no virus. I said, uh, as I heard a doctor say once, the, the diabetes can't handle his sugar, so they give him insulin, and they tell him to stay away from these sweets, and and they'll put him in and tell him exactly what to do. Now, don't you use eat any sweets. And then at midnight, this guy that's just got being told by the doctor not to use sweets, he has this obsession and craving for, for sweets, and he slips off downstairs and eats a big piece of pie. Doesn't think anybody hears him. A little while, he's gone into a diabetic coma. So... They call the doctor, and the doctor doesn't say, I told you so, what'd you break my rules for? Goodbye. I'm not coming to see you anymore. I'm through with you. Does he do that? No. He takes him to the hospital because he's in a coma and is an alcoholic in a coma just about like that, seriously speaking. Any time an alcoholic gets to the DTs. He needs emergency treatment to put him in some place or a jail or some place where there's too many of them dying in jails. Every day. All they say, he bumped his head when he was drunk or he's just a drunk. Well, let me tell you something. I don't think God in, uh, intended for us to lose our sensitivity to the suffering of pain of other human beings to the extent where we can say to a sick man, lock him up this is the only illness facing mankind today where we punish him because he's sick. The only thing that does an alcoholic, you might save his life sometimes to keep him from getting killed or hurting somebody else by locking him up, but to think that that's going to treat his alcoholism is like treating the crutch when the man's leg is broken. The symptom of alcoholism is drinking, but let's stop there and look at this compulsion to use a substance that you're allergic to. We cannot use it. We who are alcoholics, and most of the 38 states that have commissions on alcoholism and local councils, most of them who are out in the field are recovered alcoholics. And the scientists and the doctors and the people who are doing the research and the members of the council are in most cases non alcoholics And isn't it a wonderful thing to see recovered alcoholics as individuals, I don't mean as groups of AAs or anything, but as individuals joining hands and helping each other arouse a community interest. I know a little town that couldn't afford a council. I don't think they ever heard of one several years back. But there were a few AAs there. And you know every week they had a little luncheon and each A.A. would bring a businessman as his guest to this little luncheon until they practically educated the businessman there. It's changing. If you go to the Yale school where you'll have 160 people, you'll have nurses, doctors, ministers, you'll have all kinds of people, and then you'll have 20 or 30 A.A.'s, and they sit together, eat together, talk together. It's like a lady up there... Once I was making a talk, she said, "I declare, I can't believe you're an alcoholic." Well, I said, "That's what I am. I, I, I don't drink. I, I have to. I can't drink." I said, "It would. It, it's dangerous for me to drink." I said, "I can take a drunk, but I can't take a drink because of several reasons." Now I said, "I know what's wrong with me. Now what's wrong with you?" Because everybody has something wrong. Everybody has some deep, serious problem. So we alcoholics sometimes think we're the only ones with a serious problem, and we're so mistaken because everyone in this room must have something that's disturbing to them. So we need to know each other better, and we need to understand each other better. But just remember when this alcoholic quits drinking, he's just getting ready for his treatment. Another misconception, it's a weakness. Some of the strongest-willed people I've ever known in my life developed alcoholism. In fact, the matter is, I don't think a low-weak-willed person is likely to develop it because I don't think he'll work at it hard enough, long enough to become one. <laughs> I don't think he's got that much energy, ambition. Strong-willed? Sure, he's strong-willed. But he's on a wrecking crew instead of a construction gang, so he has to change wagons. I'll guarantee you this, I know a man who came into AA after he'd been dry ten years. He was treasurer of a big company here in Texas, big mattress company, died two years ago from cancer, wrote his own funeral sermon, had the AA prayer in it, and made a wonderful contribution. In fact, the last time I was with him on a meeting, we went to the stockade, the prison in Fort Camp Hood. And all of those prisoners were sitting down on the floor, and was talking to them about this problem. How interested they were, how helpful, and how seventy percent of them were there because of this problem. It's kind of a frightening thing to you, but this man spoke to them. This businessman. He said, "I quit drinking ten years ago, but I came into AA because my heart had become as hard as a walnut." <laughs> During my drinking, it was ripe like a tomato. And one of the symptoms of alcoholism is extravagant behavior, where you quit riding buses and get on these taxis. You quit buying a nickel's worth of gumdrop. You buy five pounds of candy. You buy all the newspapers from the guy at night. You don't want one of them. You pray for him. Send him home. Ask him about his ill mother. Send some flowers to her. Maybe he has two bits when he gets home. What is it? that makes him so wonderfully generous, and then when he gets sober, he's so tight that he won't give one penny. One penny. And they say one of the symptoms of recovery from alcoholism is when you can give and it ceases to be a pain. It's no longer painful. I'll bet Dr. Sutherland and some ministers would agree with me. A person who can give and loves it, it does something for it. So this alcoholic's got to do something for people He's got to, for a part of his recovery, is to take an interest in community life. But you can't get AA and this council mixed up. Because if you get treatment mixed up with education, you're you're getting people that need treatment going to the information center when they should go to AA. AA is a treatment device. This little foundation I work with is, is a teaching device. Just like your council has part of its program is to teach. And I'll be glad someday when, when your secretary, I know he can, and I know with your help he will, if we could get every ethically organized group of people in Abilene to have on their calendar once a year this problem discussed. It's asking too much to try to think you can bring people into an auditorium at regular intervals and educate. We must take this program to people in their groups. We, we have to do that to do a job but if we could ever get well I've often said if I could get the junior service lead and the junior chamber of commerce behind this thing we could keep a 100,000 people from dying the next 12 months I believe that I know what can be done when people get a deep conviction but you've got to get rid of the doubt before you can get convictions we've got to get rid of the idea that only the weak will and weak are affected. We must get rid of the idea that it's just a, a terrible habit that he drinks with his will and he wants to be that way. The alcoholic doesn't want to be sick. No one wants to be sick. And as I told those ministers, I said, you may not believe this is disease. There's certainly no germ to point to, but if you can realize this one thing, take my life. As I told Joe, one of the ministers, you knew me at SMU, Joe. I said, I had a wife and two children at twenty nine I was principal of, a, of one of our larger high schools. I had a lot of blessings come to my life, and I said, I sacrificed the loyalty and love of a family and the affections on the altar of alcohol. I sacrificed my credit in the community. I sacrificed my job and the broken hearted mother who died worrying about me, and a sister who nursed me through a drunk and I was in jail when she when she died. Two children you haven't seen in years. I said, Joe, knowing me like I was, do you think a well man would have made the sacrifice that I did for alcohol? How could you believe that? Isn't he sick? Do you have to be a doctor to believe that? People don't do those things. They are sick. That's why I'm such a strong advocate of our great mental hygiene. One of these days, many years, maybe several years off, but one day all of this field of education on alcoholism will be encompassed in the field of mental hygiene. But until we can get more than 10 or 15 percent of the people to know it, if you put alcoholism in anything else, you'll lose it. It'll lose its identity. We've got to hold a spotlight on it till there's enough public acceptance where it can function with allied causes. And I hope that you'll see fit to do that. Now, I I believe that the informed people will realize that when a man's life, when his family life or his business life or social life, when that begins to be affected by drinking, and he knows it and does nothing about it and keeps on, you've got every reason to say, this man needs help. This man needs help. He needs to gain insight into something. When this man's wife says, this is a typical example, I'm citing an experience i had. A man's a CPA in another city. He has a lovely wife and a lovely daughter. This daughter, teenager, and teenagers are frank and honest in their expressions. And sometimes we could learn from them if we could, if we could learn a lot from them if we wouldn't get our ego hurt when they talk to us. But as this girl said to her father, Dad, I wished, don't you think this drinking is getting a little serious around you? It seems like it's affecting the happiness of our home. This girl makes this statement. Now this father is offended at first because anyone who is dependent on alcohol for a sense of well-being is going to be offended by anyone who suggests that he quit using the thing that makes him feel that way when it becomes serving a need. And you know that situation is still existing today. Now this man's he loves this girl you know he does I know he does and she's a charming girl he's got a good wife now if this girl says to her father I wish you wouldn't drink anymore it's going too far don't you think dad and he gets upset and he keeps on drinking do you have to be a scientist to know he's got a problem if it had no meaning to him he's just a social person, like he'd say, well, I won't drink anymore if that bothers you, honey. That'd be a simple, effective answer. Suppose a man comes home all messed up at night, clothes all disheveled. And as the old joke goes, because the alibi system of the alcoholic is terrific, he can, it's more complicated than international business machines can ever work out. I'll guarantee that. They'll never work a machine out that'll analyze the alibis of these alcoholics. They'll go nuts trying some of them, but they'll never do it. So he comes home all this hell, and his wife says, What happened to you? He said, I was carrying a drunk home, and he dropped me. (laughs) That is just about as much logic as it will in these alibi systems. But the alibi is also a symptom and the behavior of the alcoholic is probably the disease itself because the behavior is the symptom of his illness and that is the basis of the forgiveness of the alcoholic of himself with God's help if he can't understand that his behavior is a symptom of his illness as old Dr. Lally of Yale School told me after i had been year, sober a year I had never liked I was miserable my sobriety was frightening I was scared I hadn't forgiven myself if anything good happened to me I worried about it because I thought I didn't deserve it I should be punished more for my sins I had no right to even be alive the way I'd behaved and when this wise old doctor whose family was in a German concentration camp in Europe and he was in this country and he examined over 4,000 alcoholics and he made this statement to me one day Horace my boy If you don't forgive yourself, you will die. Because you must know that your behavior was a symptom of a very serious progressive disease that you had and you were blessed to have it intercepted, not cured, but arrested. Now you must forgive yourself, son, or you can't live. And the wise doctor walked off and the unwise man did right till he could think right and that's what we have to do you know religion psychiatry and AA all agree on one thing that a man and woman in order to get well from this emotional illness this cancer of the emotions alcoholism he must or she must have A thought cleansing, a catharsis. So in AA, in the fifth step, this is where so many non-alcoholics can help AAs. In the fifth step, it says, Admit to God, to yourself, and to another human being, the things that bother you and worry you. To get things in focus because we often allow our imaginations to run completely wild. We've crossed the bridges that never even were thought were never on the blueprint stage, much less constructed. It's like that fellow went into a a store and he's holding his hand like this. The poor guy was all malformed. And he asked for something, a cigar, and he wanted somebody to light it for him. He says, what's the matter with your arm? And he was startled. And he looked over there. He said, Well, my goodness, I've dropped my watermelon. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I carried those watermelons. I know. They're the imaginary things. Oh, I just don't believe God wants us to carry on our lame backs these deep bags, heavy bags of guilt feelings. There was an arm in the Civil War, there was a Southern general who sent a messenger to another for help, and he said, I need help badly, come quickly with reinforcements, and the other one sent a courier back said, we are, have lots of baggage and equipment, and it'll take time to get to you. And he sent his courier back a second time, and he said, drop those bags, drop your baggage and come quickly, I need help. So I heard a man once say that he thought more people suffered from guilt feelings than anything in the world and that it was just the opposite of what Christ wanted them to do. I don't know, but I know if Christ saw a drunk on the streets of Abilene and his head was in the gutter and he walked by, I am so convinced in my attitude toward Christ that he would not point a hand of scorn. I don't believe he'd blow a police whistle. But I'm inclined to believe he would put his arms under his head and say, I know a way. Because I had a group once. Some of them went to sleep when I prayed. But he never lost faith. If you want a good education, study alcoholism, Because you'll study society. You'll study every avenue of it. And it will be revealed. Now, if we don't have more informed people, if we don't have people to realize that... Did you know that about 80% of the sick alcoholics today are not on skid row or in jail? They are working people with families living in what is known the social alcoholic fraternity. Did you know over 60% of the alcoholics come into AA today have homes and families and jobs? When I came in in May 44... Everybody had probably been locked up or in an institution or been declared hopeless. I not only had 54 doctors individually, but I had a whole medical school declare me hopeless in St. Louis. The entire medical school studied me as a hopeless case, and I was rolled from classroom to classroom while the neurologists lectured, pointing to the young doctors, that you better not worry yourself sick with these kind of people when they come to see you because you can't help them. That was my contribution to the cause. And I left there with a hopeless diagnosis, hopeless prognosis, if they'd had any other kind of gnosis, I'd have had it. <laughs> but they didn't know something, and you couldn't condemn them for that. Recently, I was talking to our graduating class of doctors at Galveston, University of Texas Medical School. And what a difference. I told him, I said, it seemed back in the 30s that I was used as an example in the classroom to warn you not to waste time with these people. And now you're using me to know what you can do to give hope. And all in a period of 25 years. So that's why I'm so thrilled to see people like you come up Because before the alcoholic can get well, he must have hope that he can. Genuine hope, and he can usually get that from a recovered alcoholic because the recovered alcoholic makes it possible for the sick alcoholic to quit lying. And he's had to lie so much in his life because lying with an alcoholic is a way of life. It's not something that you cultivate like these lies you and I might tell right now, but white lies but it's a way of life it's a protective screen but you don't realize soon his mind can't remember anything he's telling other people he's on the defensive so much that he's full of negativism. that'll make you sick I think if you just get full of being negative all the time I guess you'd get sick too. so when an alcoholic is given the privilege to tell the truth and quit lying to someone who's been through what he has there's such a relief that I've seen it stop the shakes No, that's that's the truth. I've seen it stop the shakes where the man, anyone else said he needs a drink. I've seen that man talk and I know A's in this room have seen it happen too where there was a calmness came into their life when they could tell the truth about their problems and not be laughed at, not be ridiculed, not be punished. So hope. Hope. I owe my life to a woman who's now my wife, a little 10-year-old girl. I owe my life to her because she had gone back to school in her 30s. And that day in SMU, they lectured in sociology on the problems of alcoholism and the fact that there were 12 AAs in Dallas who were getting well. Where would I be had it not have been that that man lectured that day on the problem in May six forty four? Where would have happened to me if this girl hadn't have been in that classroom. What would have happened to me had this non-alcoholic not known an AA in Dallas? There was no phone number. Why was it somebody knew John C.? And why did I come up there after 10 days of being sick, drunk, and a person I'd never seen in my life had knowledge? had the truth about this problem. And all of these years in hospitals and everything gone, she was the first human being who ever spoke to me when I was drinking who said, you're sick. All of my hundreds of friends and acquaintances had always said, if you just quit drinking, everything would be all right. They were mixing drunkenness and alcoholism up. What a relief to be able to find out what was wrong with you. What a relief to know this, and this is important, of all the illnesses, chronic illnesses affecting mankind, alcoholism has the best response to treatment. That's the tragedy of six million. That's the tragedy of 200,000 in Texas today. That's the tragedy of every sick alcoholic in this community and every other community is the fact he doesn't know he's ill. He doesn't know what a wonderful treatment he can get a treatment that once he takes can make him a better person than before he was ever sick the philosophy of lately so let's get rid of our misinformation let's get rid of all of this uh, facts that only the weak are affected an illness is no respecter of people race creed classification socially and economic or otherwise no sir it does not I heard a wise man and a scientist say this. The greatest tension reducing device in the world is not any sedative, whether it be alcohol or anything else, but is faith in the living God. And I think that one of the most thrilling things on this whole study of alcoholism is that so many men and women who've gotten well through turning their will and life over the care of God as they understand him and isn't it wonderful that this spiritual movement is now right in our horizon and what a wonderful thing it would be if every sick alcoholic could know he was sick if everyone who loved him could know that you've got to see him as a sick person in order to help him if every man, woman and child could know that there's a form of drinking that's a sickness it leads to death or insanity unless it's checked. We should take the romance out of this thing, the social (coughs) pressures out of it. We should know for one thing about alcohol, as an anesthetic, it reduces pain, and the alcoholic used it to reduce the pain of despair and loneliness, the despair of inferiority, the despair of emotional immaturity when you were grown physically and intellectually, but down here somewhere you were emotionally immature. You were so busy with your own problems and conflicts, you had no room in your heart to love another human being. And we have to love each other to get well. We have to regain our sense of sensitivity to the pain and suffering of other people. Know an AA personally. Go to your library and get the AA book and read it. It's thrilling. In the last issue of the Saturday Evening Post before this one, read that story of the doctor who was an alcoholic and how he kept sober in a drinking world. Read the last issue of the Reader's Digest, another story of a recovered alcoholic. You know somebody's sick? Say a little prayer for him. Remember, if you're a loved one, the one who's emotionally close to the alcoholic is less likely to help them than anyone else. If you know a friend of a sick alcoholic, work through the friend that he might get this sick alcoholic to seek help. Use your information center. They're doing a job, but never judge the results of a council's work with an ad machine. Never judge the number of people that go to an information center as a symbol of its effectiveness. Never judge how much literature they send out, because this is a hard job to change public attitude. But you can get a speaker's bureau, and you can take this message to every ethically organized group, and you can have your council meetings, and I know of plenty of men in authority who can come with to you and talk to you about the medical aspects, the sociological aspects, and you as a council can inform yourselves until your enthusiasm radiates itself into every area of this community and your raise in this community can close ranks and hold a steady force and be on tap always to help those who seek help and you as non-alcoholics can be like that woman who saved my life who looked beyond what the, she saw with her eyes saw a person inside sick and who said to me you're ill who took me as a stranger to her home and fed me and called John and I went and spent my first night in John's home between white sheets on the bed for the first time in years this illness will saturate every decency you've got in your whole personality when we say it doesn't affect anybody but me what a lie the big lie. Everyone who lives in the area of an alcoholic gets sick. I know from a cold, disheartening experience that there is no deeper, more painful bruise than a little child living in a home where this illness is present, who is so emotionally bruised that it takes them a long time to even learn to love their own father even though he's well. This is a serious malady. If you don't know someone, forget that. These high school kids have got to know the facts about this problem. It's the state law of the Constitution of the state of Texas that alcohol education be taught in every school that's partially or totally supported by tax money. Our teachers' institutes have got to do what other states are doing, requiring training in the courses of how to teach this problem objectively. We've got to do what Oregon is doing. If they sell liquor anywhere, they've got to put a pamphlet with every bottle giving the symptoms of alcoholism. You're a fortunate community here. You're a clean city. You've got wonderful resources. I ask in closing, once you have the best counsel on alcoholism that is possible so that you might stand as a symbol for all the others that are struggling. Thank you. you.